The thrill and excitement of March Mania is here, and DraftKings Sportsbook, one of America's top-rated sportsbook apps, is giving new customers a shot to turn 5 bucks into $150 instantly in bonus bets with any college basketball bet. You can find all the lines and available odds, of course, at the DraftKings Sportsbook app. North Carolina listeners, don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook is now live in your state. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app and use code SBNFL. New customers can bet 5 bucks to get $150 instantly in bonus bonus bets only at DraftKings Sportsbook with code SBNFL. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 8778-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash bball for eligibility, deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. It's that time of week again, folks. It's the Orange and Black Insider Bagels Podcast. I am Anthony Cazenza, joined by my partner in crime, John Sheeran. John, how's it going, man? Two ten and one, something like that, right? Is that where we're at now? It's kind of hard to even keep track anymore. But uh, how you doing, my man? Little losses, a lot of wins, a lot of gains. It. Ah, gosh, I am jealous. I still can't, still can't regularly locate that out here in SoCal. I got, I got to get a distributor out here that. That can regularly get that. Uh, I am jealous, though. I need to. I need to get myself some of those bad boys. But good to have you with us, as always. Good to have all of our live viewers with us. Uh, we've got kind of a lot to get to. We we're going to try and follow up on the great show we had last week with Tim McGee joining us. If you haven't had a chance, check that out. All of our content is on our YouTube channel, right under John's left shoulder. You can subscribe to that channel, and then you can also get all of our audio stuff on your favorite podcast streaming platform. So go ahead and do that. And uh, we appreciate any feedback you have on us. I apologize about some of the background noise. I've got my my little guy running rampant around here, um, but uh, hopefully he won't make too much of a ruckus. Anyway, good to have everyone with us, John. Uh, we we're gonna get to some some more injury news. Shocking for the Cincinnati Bengals. We've got a stat of the week, and we've got some Steelers Steelers Week football to talk about. But before we do, we've got a loss, unfortunately, to break down. Bengals lose handily at the uh, the right arm of their former quarterback, Andy Dalton. The Dallas Cowboys came to town. They were not a very good team record-wise, still don't appear to be a very good team, yet they are somehow in the NFC East hunt and beat the Bengals 30-7. to Overall impressions from you in this one. Yeah, a little, a little, little Regan over there. He's just trying to, trying to find amusement, just like I think we are at this point <laughs> in the season. Um, yeah, dude, it was – I remember talk, we, we talked with – Matt Minnick on our pregame show, and he said, "Like this is a game. I think we all agree this is, a, this is like their last winnable game that they had, and a game that they could at least keep close and make interesting." I think the spread was on like three and a half or something like that. We all we all expected this game to be kind of close, and if it wasn't, it is a damning indictment on the coaching staff and I guess the roster in general. And that's kind of what happened. You know, it was their former quarterback having a very solid game against. Um, a secondary that just couldn't really keep up with the Cowboys receivers. Unfortunately, you had Brandon Allen being efficient, but just not making those key throws down the field. AJ Green played well, but just um, you know not well enough throughout the entire game. And you know if you fumble the ball three times in the first ten minutes of the game, more times than not, you're going to lose. The last team that did that actually won, which was the uh, the, pa- the Patriots against the Broncos back in 2013. But Bengals are not the Patriots; they don't really. All right, they're not able to recover from things like that. It was it was bad in a lot of ways. You know, I I think like it was the first time that any of us saw Zach Taylor like not be have this misplaced optimism after the game. It looked like he was just more dejected and defeated than he ever had been before as the head coach who had lost 23 games prior to this, but it was just even when, you know, they were moving the ball decently well in those first couple drives and just they made the mistakes that they couldn't possibly make. And the Cowboys ended up scoring, I think like 17 points off of those three turnovers. So it was 
the, the nail in that coffin very early in the game, and they, they just, they're just not good enough. They're not coached well enough to come back from that deficit. Congratulations to Robert Holtkamp in the live Facebook chat. It's, it looks as if he won some money uh, this weekend betting against, uh, <laughs> betting against the Bengals. So I guess congratulations are in order for him. I want to talk about those three fumbles because that really was kind of just, I guess, the story of the game for the most part. The Bengals moved the ball well. I thought Brandon Allen played relatively well, given what we've seen from him and what his career has been. He was efficient. Uh, He was under duress at certain points. He had a couple of bad misses. One was just a throwaway at the back of the the end zone on a fourth down. That was just kind of an egregious miss and one across the middle. But no turnovers, um, efficient day. So I want to get your thoughts on him. But Let's start with the let's start with the turnovers. Where do you where do you kind of shoulder the blame on this one? Is it the players or is it the coaches when you see stuff like that? To me, I I say coaches because I look at this and I say Zach Taylor in his post game press conference said he was going to have a lot of guys touching the ball in the running game, uh, and they knew that going into it supposedly. And one fumble, maybe everybody kind of emphasizes. Let's hang on to the ball. Two fumbles more so, and then somehow a third fumble happens, and then two of them are from longtime veterans who who have been on your team for a long time, one guy a captain. So I, I know there's an argument to be made for both. I kind of err a little bit on blaming the coaches on this one. Where What are your thoughts on that? Poor Alex Erickson, man. He just gets so limited opportunities and just managed to bungle <laughs> each and every one of them outside of that Giants game. But, yeah, like it's so rare to see Giovanni Bernard fumble. He hasn't done it since his rookie season. Trevion Williams only had like 10 total carries in his career before – he yeah. he manufactured his own buff fumble 2.0 with the Kemet Energy's <laughs> rear end. It's like yeah, like I, you would assume that there would be an emphasis on you know protecting the football, but also it, it's like you know I think naturally you want as a fan of of a, of a bad team to have a sense of accountability, and you saw so much accountability in this game, it was like an overdose of it from the benchings of Randy Bullock and Michael Jordan before yeah. the game to then the benching of Giovanni Bernard and then Travion Williams after those two fumbles. You almost think like. If there is that sense of if I do something wrong, I'm going to have my ass on the bench. Like, the, does the propensity of of those mistakes almost increase because you have that kind of lingering in the back of your mind? It's 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 I guess difficult to find a balance between having that accountability, but also having the trust in the players that you have in your roster for a reason. So, yeah, like I, I think part of it's on coaching, but part of it's on like the guys just can't run into into their own offensive linemen and just miss the hole completely and just. And just have bad ball security like the Alex Erickson fumble that was inexcusable he had the first down there and he almost like ran backwards and just and just couldn't protect the ball and it's just like yeah it's it's on the coaching to a degree but these guys got to hold on to the ball anyways yeah I, I guess I mean like I said there's an argument to be made for both I guess I just you know if that was your game plan going in it that you are going to be giving you know the the carries to a lot of different players I just kind of felt like hey you know maybe ball security should have been emphasized throughout the week and maybe it was and it and maybe it was the players but I, I don't know I kind of just it, it's hard not to point blame at the coaches for a lot of the mistakes that we're seeing I guess and that's that's unfortunately where where my head's at with this thing talking about Brandon Allen I mentioned his stats you know pretty efficient day a couple of misses but overall nice day by him do you chalk that up to a bad Cowboys defense a good day from Brandon Allen that uh, you know, he's getting a little more comfortable with more playing time, a little bit of both. I don't know. What do you think? Cowboys had a terrible defense, so it wasn't surprising to see them have some marginal success. And it was good to see him connect with A.J. Green for the first time since he's been a starter. But we can go back to the coaches with this because what we're going to remember from this game was Allen getting hit multiple times in the fourth quarter, him obviously hobbling. And like the same side of the same part of the field that two weeks prior, Daniel Jones could barely stand with the Giants. And they had to pull him for Colt McCoy. And Colt McCoy happened to be pretty decent against a bad Bengals defense. So when you go back to the coaches, like when you watch that, the end of that drive where Allen just can't put any power behind any of his throws. And then for the drive to end in a, in a fourth and down fair, when he basically throws the ball in the end zone, because he just, he just can't have, he, he just doesn't, doesn't have it. His leg doesn't work anymore. Like even when like the world is throwing everything it has at Zach Taylor, everybody knew that as bad as Ryan Finley is, he needed to be in that game because he was at least able to throw a football like Brandon Allen at that point wasn't. So Anthony, when you look at that, like what does that say about Zach Taylor? If even when he's put, put in a bad situation, he still can't even make the obvious right choice. 
Well, that's – and by the way, you've got someone here, Kevin Reynolds in the live Facebook chat, uh, agreeing with you on the throw out of the end zone came when he was hobbling pretty bad. So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> to be honest with you, it's almost like I think Zach has learned that he just doesn't want to go to Ryan Finley unless he absolutely freaking has to. I think that's kind of what, what it tells me about this whole thing. And, you know, it, it, we're now on two quarterbacks injured because of this offensive line and the, and the number of hits that they tend to take. And this is a system that, yeah, you don't have the, you know, the, the guys that a Lamar Jackson type of quarterback that run that frequently, but you have guys that use their legs and extend plays. That's part of what this offense installation is. And so with that, you're going to take quarterback hits. And that's why having a great offensive line or a good offensive line that can limit the amount of big hits on the quarterback is paramount. And they just, we keep harping on this week in, week out. They have failed to construct an offensive line that is consistently able to protect the quarterbacks. And now, like I said, you've got two quarterbacks. One, your franchise quarterback that you drafted number one overall, and Brandon Allen, who you're trying to give an audition to to see if he is your backup quarterback of the future to Joe Burrow. You now got both of them hurt because they're taking a massive amount of hits, a lot of pressures, and some of it's on their own doing. I mean, we know Joe Burrow ran into a couple of hits and whatnot, but, I mean, the offensive line has to take the indictment on on these injuries, I would think. Right, and, I mean, we can talk about the bone bruise, too. Like, I think, that, like they said, he's the starter if he's healthy, but we don't honestly know when that's going to be. The Bengals don't practice until Thursday. This podcast is being recorded on Wednesday, so it'll be interesting to see if if Allen is is limited, if if he doesn't practice at all. Bone bruise is kind of tricky. I think A.J. Brown of the Titans suffered a bone bruise early in the season, and he missed a couple of games and just wasn't really 100% until recently. So it could be it could be kind of tricky with, with Allen. I mean, we don't know the extent and the severity of the bone bruise, but still, it's... And there was some discourse on Twitter today that I thought was interesting. People talked about, you know, where do sacks fall in terms of responsibilities? More on the quarterback, it's more on the offensive line. And I think we all can agree that with Burrow's playing style, like he's going to take some more hits that maybe other quarterbacks don't because he he extends plays and creates out of the pocket. And sometimes he'll run into some hits. But when you have that quarterback and you also have an offensive line that gets him into trouble on some passes that shouldn't be, the quarterback shouldn't be hit and he shouldn't be sacked. It just adds on to, to all of that. So while, yes, quarterbacks are also very much responsible for the sacks that they take, the fact that they that these quarterbacks behind this offensive line take even more hits and therefore more sacks, it just makes the situation a lot worse. Interesting topic brought up by, let's see who this was, Andrew Bam Greer in the live fa- Facebook chat. I mean, what if Brandon Allen can't go? Um, what, what do the Bengals do at court? I mean, do they try and bring in an emergency guy? Do they call up some, you know, I mean, I, I, they're in such a bad spot based on how they've ill-prepared setting up this offensive line that now you're in a spot where against, against arguably the toughest team on your schedule in the Pittsburgh Steelers, you're not only trotting out your number three quarterback who has been demoted, uh, since you've promoted Brandon Allen, he was originally your number two, but you're now playing your number three quarterback and you may not even have a fourth option readily available i honestly wouldn't mind seeing kevin hogan like i mean just just call him up see what he can do probably yeah like i think you have a point they don't want to put put in finley until they absolutely have to and i think that was unfortunately on display when that last brandon allen drive took place like i think hogan was protected on the practice squad this week for the sole reason in case he has to be activated for this game in case allen isn't 100 percent and it would just be so funny if he just gets the start over over Ryan Finley. It's just like, it's, but the writing is so clearly on the wall. It's in like a hundred font with permanent black marker. It's crazy. Yeah, I, you know, good point about Hogan. Hogan is a, a, an athletic guy. He's another guy who likes to run around too, though. John, <laughs> he's another guy that'll that'll uh, take some hits here and there. So it's kind of like, oh boy, are you wa- walking the the razor's edge on that one too? But I, I wouldn't mind seeing what he's got. He's, he put together a couple of decent starts for the Browns a little while back. And, um, you know, he had a good college career at Stanford, an interesting kid. So, you know, I wouldn't mind seeing him play if, if Brandon Allen is not getting the chance to play this week. So um, I guess the last thing we should talk about, I mean, because there's really not many highlights from this game for the Cincinnati Bengals. Uh, I guess if you want to bridge a little bit, Cincinnati Bengals and players past, et cetera, Andy Dalton, there are a lot of nice images of he and his wife, at Paul Brown Stadium, first time back for Andy Dalton coming to uh, Cincinnati. 
starting quarterback for Dallas that the quarterbacks who were playing this week were not uh, foreseen to be playing <laughs> when the schedule makers had this one uh, marked up. But I mean, I, I know we kind of want the Bengals to win. There are some people who are saying, well, we don't want them to win because of draft positioning again. But uh, I mean, it was nice to see Andy Dalton come in there and have a smile on his face, play loose, play, you know, he didn't play outstanding, but he did what he had to do, didn't turn the ball over, and he had a lot of short fields to work with, so kind of made life easy for him. Yeah, he almost got me because, like, he was doing pretty well throughout the first half, and overall he had a good game. He, he had a lot of success going to C.D. Lamb and Amari Cooper against the secondary. Mackenzie Alexander, unfortunately, did not have a very good game covering C.D. Lamb in the slot, but he, uh, you know, the Cowboys offense stalled a little bit in the third quarter while the Bengals offense continued to be completely inept. They had to, like, um, three three straight punts and like a field goal on there, but ended with a touchdown to Tony Pollard. So finished with like 16 for 23, 185 yards, two touchdowns. I mean, who, who doesn't like, who, who would, who did, who, who didn't like seeing that, you know, just the, the, the banner up in the third deck, thanking Andy and JJ, JJ in the, in the booth with um, AJ Green's wife watching the game. And it, it, it was great to see, you know, I, and honestly, it, it's, it's a great headline of just like the difference between these two teams, because there were so many parallels with, with these two teams coming into this game. You had a backup quarterback. You had a maligned and injured offensive line. The Cowboys had practice squad cornerbacks playing for this game. Like yep. Both teams were dealing with adversity, and Mike McCarthy was on the hot seat coming into this game, and it just shows the difference between one team overcoming that adversity, one team being hampered by it. You know, The Cowboys put together a solid game plan against a bad team, just like the Bengals had an opportunity to do so against a bad Cowboys team, but one team won by 23 points. It's just the difference. It, you know, it, for a little bit, it felt a little closer than 23 points, but I mean, those three fumbles and everything, it just snowballed on the Bengals. And, you know, that's the type of, even with a maligned roster around him, that's the type of situation that Andy Dalton does thrive in where, you know, his team's getting him turnover short fields and makes life easy for him. And he, to his credit, he, he played okay, played pretty well. He threw a couple of nice balls to, you know, C.D. Lamb and uh, I think a couple of others that are kind of on out routes to the sideline. And then, you know, I think he threw, he threw for under 200 yards, but had the two touchdowns. And like you said, a lot of good images and images that kind of conjure up some of the successful days he has had with the Cincinnati Bengals. So I guess we can take solace a little bit, depending on your feelings on Andy Dalton overall. But I mean, Andy Dalton, the man is a, is a great guy and he's done a lot of good things for Cincinnati. So, you know, I mean, I think if if you have to take that L, I think you you can take it with the image of of Andy Dalton having fun with it, and um, you know at least getting a little bit of a of a revenge, I guess, against the Bengals. Oh. We're gonna go ahead. Yeah. Also, Brandon Keith Boggs and Facebook said, yeah, yeah, makes a great point. Dallas just played on Tuesday night. You know, they had like basically yeah. one practice for this game. So, yeah, just just adding on to the point. Right. That's a that's a good comment there by Brandon and thanks for bringing that up that uh, it's another thing that kind of speaks volumes about where the Bengals are at at this point in time and not only injury wise and all of that which we'll talk more about in just a few minutes but uh, a lot of different things this is the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast we've got a stat of the week to get to we've got some injury news and a little bit of a conversation topic spinning off of that injury news and then we're going to talk a little bit about the Steelers game coming up I'm Anthony Cazenza the genius next to me is John Sheeran, and you can subscribe to this podcast. There's a little icon right under John there. Go ahead and subscribe to this podcast channel. You can get shows like ours and Matt Minnick's Chalk Talk on this YouTube channel. You can also catch our live recordings on Cincy Jungle's Facebook page and our Twitter account at Bengals OBI. And all of the Cincy Jungle podcast channel material is on your favorite podcast streaming platform. So download it. Leave us a rating. We appreciate the support. Stat of the week this week will also be just like it was last week or maybe two weeks ago. I don't know. It's hard to keep up the dates. Going to go another positive note here, though. We just had Sam Hubbard on last week, and we posted that. Uh, we transcribed that interview on Cincy Jungle last week. He's doing great work with the Free Store Food Bank, courtesy of Pepsi. Sam Hubbard, last three weeks, has kind of returned to his old self, and you can kind of see that in the numbers in run defense. Last three weeks, since weeks 12 through 14, he leads... All box players, defensive ends, at uh, defensive tackles, linebackers, and run stops, according to Pro Football Focus, with 18. The next closest edge defender is for OSU teammate Joey Bosa with 10. 
In the last two weeks, he's had 12 against the Dolphins and the Cowboys. And against the Cowboys, he looked especially well. I highlighted him in weekly lineman this week. That's being posted on Thursday. But we're seeing the old, the old usual Sam Hubbard now that he's about five weeks back from returning from that elbow injury. And he just, he, I think the evaluation on Hubbard is pretty clear at this point, Anthony. He's just a high quality run defender who you can just, regardless of who he's going up against, he's just a, a solid player in that regard as a pass rusher, more matchup, more matchup dependent against this game. He was going against backup tackles and he had some success and he had some success against Miami, but you can always rely on him and run defense when he's hundred percent. I, I like that you brought up Hubbard and uh, you know, unfortunately for me, I, I, I didn't give us much prep time, but I was thinking about edge players before we took the air, a little bit before we took the air, I was looking at some Twitter discourse about Carl Lawson. Sam Hubbard came to mind. I started thinking, I'm like, you know, it seems as if the Bengals have two pretty good edge players in Lawson and Hubbard. They need to hang on to Lawson. I think a lot of us agree about that. But Lawson to me is kind of a, you know, he's a guy that is a good second like a, a a robin to a batman edge rusher you know what i'm saying like he's a good he's a good guy that'll get your pressures and he, he'll he'll sack the quarterback occasionally and he'll make some plays back there you've got kind of a, a guy in hubbard who will make the occasional pressure occasional sack but is pretty good against the run kind of the michael johnson type of mold a little bit off the edge and then you know i'm kind of like you know if you keep lawson you've got hubbard and if you just find that guy that edge guy that that you know that superior edge player all of a sudden, I feel like that just raises the level of all of these guys. And I think that Sam Hubbard, when he was most effective, is when you had a healthy and me- mentally in it, Carlos Dunlap, uh, a healthy Geno Atkins, where there were healthy, good players around him, it made him effective. And it made his matchups a lot easier. So I, I do think that the Bengals have, and this may be a Captain Obvious type of statement that I'm, that I'm bringing up here, but I do think that if the Bengals invest in one of their top picks or maybe maybe high-end free agency in a an elite edge rusher all of a sudden I think this defensive line if you keep Lawson um, and you hang on to Hubbard there I don't know I think they've got a pretty good rotation I think they've got their two and three set with Lawson and Hubbard I still think they need that alpha dog but um, I was just thinking about that before we took a little bit before we took the air today and that's a crucial part of judging Lawson right now because entering a contract here I mean he's not He's not losing as a pass rusher. He's got like PFFs, you know, a very high pass rushing grade, very high win rate. It's not always being translated to sacks, but it's just hard when you create so much pressure and no one else is really doing their job. He's got the market share on just like pass rushing wins and pressures right now with this defensive line, but it's more of an indictment on the entire state of the the defensive line. So the Bengals have to decide, are they willing to invest a, a surplus of money into a guy who's just a valuable piece of the puzzle, but not the piece of the puzzle that that you go out and spend $15 million or whatever the amount ends up being per year in free agency. That's going to be a, a crucial talking point because you're right. Like Hubbard, you can even throw Khalid Kareem in there as like a, a similar player in, in the mold of like a solid run defender who just doesn't really win a lot of one-on-one matchups. They just need – I mean, it, that's why Chase Youngs go second overall. That's why Von Miller's go second overall. It, it's valuable, and the Bengals still need to find that. Yeah, I had heard, um, just total non sequitur, but I had heard years and years ago that if Von Miller did not go to the Broncos in that draft, in the 2011 draft, that the Bengals would have drafted him instead of A.J. Green at that spot. Marvin Lewis loved Von Miller. So, um, interesting you bring him. (laughs) I mean, he was as as can't miss as as you can come, you know. Even for being undersized, like, no one had run, like, a three-cone that quick for, for a guy who rushed the passers and get them any sacks. So that was, yeah, that was right. And, and even that, if you look at that model too, Von Miller top, top two, right. Wasn't he number two overall, mm-hmm. number three overall. And then a couple of years later, you get Bradley Chubb, another guy, top, top player in the draft. And you pair those guys and those guys, I mean, they've had some injuries of late, but they've had a couple of successful seasons together. And that's kind of my point. I think, you know, some of these things where we say Carl Lawson is not putting up the, you know, the big, uh, stat numbers that I guess a lot of people, you know, your sacks and all that kind of stuff. I think you get that guy in there and all of a sudden, then you start to even see those stats from Lawson increase. And now all of a sudden you're paying a guy, you know, you, you may say, well, you're paying a guy who's only getting a handful of sacks per year. Okay. Well now if you get another guy to help him out, maybe interior defensive lineman to, to bolster that inside a little bit, because there's been a lot of issues there in terms of health. All of a sudden, maybe these start, 
kind of connecting into those more obvious stats that people look at with Carl Lawson if you if you add in another piece of that puzzle. Yeah, and we can talk about something very similar to a player that we're about to get to in terms of some injury news. Yeah, I'm going to let you take take kind of the reins on this, John, but I do want to, uh, because you put up a post on Cincy Jungle, and I will share that with everybody as, as they look at it. But in case people do not know, Geno Atkins was placed on IR as of Wednesday. He had been dealing with that shoulder injury. John, I'm going to share that with you if you want to share a little bit more about uh, some news surrounding that. Right. So being placed on IR with three weeks left in the season this year, your your year is done. You had to wait three weeks. So this essentially means he's on IR for the rest of the season. And Ian Rappaport soon reported after uh, the Bengals announced that, that Gina would be getting surgery on that shoulder sometime in the off season. So, I mean, Gina's not done. He's going to be 33, but he's not done playing football. He wants to get a couple more years in. The question is, will that be with the Bengals? Now, before we get into that, I, at least Jesse of allbangles.com um, reported that Gino signed a waiver to play this season um, with, with, with that shoulder injury. And yeah, like this is a guy that, I mean, he's got the sickle cell trait. He was, his wife was pregnant during the start of the season. He had every reason to be a guy that opted out of, of the season. And he could have, you know, he could have just tapped out with that shoulder injury before the season began or during the beginning part of the season when he missed the first four games and say, you know, I, I just don't have the season. He, go, he goes on IR and he still gets his full salary, but he decided to tough it out and he didn't play a game with with more than 20 snaps, but he still w- was out there and he was doing what the coaches told him to do. And I think he de- deserves a lot of credit for that. And, you know, he, this may be the last time, this this season may have been the last time that, that we see him in a Bengals uniform, but he, he, he went out fighting. I think he deserves credit for that. Yeah, there was, and this is where, when you're not inside those walls, you don't. And, and Geno Atkins has never been a, a garrulous guy with the media. We know that. Um, this is this is why when you when you don't when you're not inside there, you make uh, allegations or you make conjecture about what's actually going on there. And Geno's not the same. And why isn't he getting playing time? Well, now now the pieces are kind of coming together, right? Uh, he just never was healthy this entire year. He, he tried not to have surgery on this thing. He tried to play through it. And really, uh, we kind of railed the coaches a little bit about why isn't Geno Atkins getting more playing time? Well, it, it was kind of a two-pronged thing. He wasn't effective because it wasn't healthy, but also they were doing him a solid because he was not healthy and they weren't going to keep throwing him out there and make things worse for him, but they wanted to do him a solid and let him play as he requested. And he signed a waiver to do so. So, you know, he could have, he could have threw in the towel this year, like you said, John, and he didn't. And uh, I, I think there, there's a lot to, there's a lot to admire with how Gino handled this, uh, this season. And I want to get your thoughts on that. I'm going to share also, as you do, Another piece of news with this, but uh, I mean, I think, I think, like you said, it's pretty admirable that Geno Atkins played, played, tried to do go as long as he did in this situation. And I don't think that any of any one of us would blame him if it ended up somewhat similar to the Carl Stelnap situation, because the, uh, right. for all we knew, like if if he was if he was out there and he was playing, then the the, the assumption is that he's at least healthy enough to play. And if Geno Atkins is healthy enough to play. Presumably, you would play him over guys like Xavier Williams, and like, and that just wasn't the case. Like, they knew more than we did, but all we knew is that he was out there and he wasn't getting any playing time. So, if he if he decided to to go public on some of these things and just you know utilize his leverage as a guy who's a highly respected and highly paid member of the organization, I think we all would have been on understanding of that. But that's just not what happened. So these guys, like they they may take you know alternative paths of. Of, of whatever they decide to do. But I think it's important that we all respect what, what they end up doing. There's no right way in terms of handling stuff, something like this, especially when we don't know the full story. So, you know, Carlos exited the Bengals in his own way and Gino very, very might exit the Bengals in his own way. And I think we should both respect that as guys who did so much for this organization. Yep. So here's the next one. Uh, you know, the Gino and the Bengals are set to part ways. And I think there was, it was a report from Tyler Dragon here that started this on Wednesday. Basically um, it looks as if Gino Atkins is planning to move on from the Cincinnati Bengals. And it may be somewhat predictable And those stars slash borderline or, or hall of famers. We'll talk more about that in a second from 
the 2010-2011 draft classes for the Cincinnati Bengals. Looks like their future after 2020 is very much in doubt. There was also some comments by A.J. Green this week that were very ambiguous about his staying in Cincinnati, but uh, you can find this on cincyjungle.com, but uh, Tyler Dragon of the Cincinnati Enquirer relaying this one that Atkins, by all accounts, is probably not. They're going to talk about it, he and the team, but by all accounts, they are not going to continue this relationship beyond this year. The Bengals will save a considerable amount of money. They will eat some of the money of a recent contract extension. I think it was in the 2018 offseason that he and Dunlap signed. So they will eat some of that money, but they'll free up some money, hopefully to use towards offensive line help in other areas. Right. And that, that dead money aspect is pretty important. I think they save about just under 10 million and they will eat about 5 million of that. Right. And, yeah, like I mean, five million—that's that, like an average for agent that the Bengals sign. So it's going to slightly impact what they do in free agency. Not a lot, but it is going on the books, and it's something that they're going to account for. But I think they're willing to do it. I think it—it it, it just seems like it's time, you know, it, with, with with how the season end ended, the fact that Dunlap's already out there, the fact that AJ is probably going to be gone too. It, it's at, at one point you kind of wish that they were a little bit more proactive about the situation. Um, in terms of offloading some of these guys for actual draft capital, but at the same time, there there is a point where like it's okay to want a player to to establish his entire legacy with the team that that drafted you, and to to have that for like the, the team to boast about. You know, this play, this player who very well could end up in the Hall of Fame was on track to finish his entire career in Cincinnati, which is something that not a lot of Bengals greats can actually say. Unfortunately, in We've seen a lot of examples of that in recent memory. So, you know, it's unfortunate that this very well may could be the end, but I think we all know it's time. And unfortunately, a 33-year-old Geno Atkins is probably not as effective as someone that the Bengals could also pay for $10 million in free agency this offseason. I think the Bengals just didn't want to admit, you know, there's a lot of chatter this week about, especially with this news, you know, why didn't they unload him? Why didn't they unload a disgruntled Carlos Dunlap if this is something that was going back back to last season? Why didn't AJ Green, why didn't you, you know, it's easy to play hindsight, number one. But number two, you know, I think the Bengals just didn't want to admit that they were in full rebuild mode and they didn't want to go fire sale. I don't think they knew how to sell that to the fan base after the the, the 2015 playoff debacle against the Steelers and the ensuing seasons under Marvin Lewis. I don't think they knew how to sell that to the fan base in terms of we're going to sell everything, get a new coach in here, struggle for a couple of years. And then maybe year three year four is when things really start to turn around. I don't think they wanted to do that. And they, they do, they did kind of overvalue these guys in terms of where they're at health, everything. And I don't think they knew how to, to how to really market that to the fan base, the way that the Miami dolphins have seemingly done it. Um, I just, I, I think they wanted to try and have at least some form of a bridge for Zach Taylor and it just didn't work. Right. And these guys were signed, you know, in the off season of Marvin Lewis's last year. And I don't think that they were necessarily in the wrong for reinvesting in them. I think like, like we're seeing now, Carlos Dunlap is still pretty effective in Seattle because he just happens right. to be a little bit, a little bit more motivated and a little bit happier where he is. And I think if Gino was still healthy this year, he still would have been a solid player. And that at that point, you know, that's living out half of those of both of those contracts. That's still a pretty wise investment for you know extending guys who are in their late twenties, early thirties at the time. So they even if it wasn't exactly smart in terms of investing like the right resources i think for their talents it was still like hindsight i think you can still kind of support their decision making there but you know if they wanted to go full blown rebuild they probably would have fired marvin lewis before that year anyways so you know what are you gonna do right larry wilson says what is there to sell we already know that this team is really bad one well, larry i'm going i'm going back to early 2019 when you're hiring in a new coaching staff overhauling the entire roster and you're trying to say you know new coach doesn't necessarily mean rebuild for three years it especially when you've got a lot of their longtime veterans a couple of potential hall of fame players and geno atkins and aj green on the roster the point was is they were trying to sell to the fan base we're not packing it in we're still going to be competitive and uh, give this coach some some veteran some great veteran players to start off with and it just hasn't worked for injury reasons primarily John, let's talk about that. I mean, these are two guys who they should very well be in the Hall of Fame discussion, 
but recent seasons, particularly for AJ Green, but recent seasons have with injuries and just lack of success by the team have, have really kind of taken a little bit of a, a hit to their resumes. Where do you stand on their chances of wearing those gold jackets at some point is one more likely to get it than the other. Uh, what do you think? Uh, older people associated with the Bengals know this a lot better than me. It's, it's hard to get in as a former Bengals player, unless you're the greatest player at your position. So I think when you're talking about AJ, he was already fighting an uphill battle, not because of the, of the Jersey that he's worn, but the position that he plays, it's harder for receivers to get in at least earlier in their eligibility. But yeah, this it, it's, it, it kills AJ. It, it has to like, he's got essentially two lost seasons at the tail end of his prime. And I, I, I have no doubt that he still thinks that he has good seasons left in him, but they're not in Cincinnati. And after this game, I think he talked to the media and it was the first time that he like, because the narrative with him has always been, you know, Larry Fitzgerald want to stay with one team for his entire career. We respected that. But like, if he wanted to change that mindset, I think we all would have had to respect that too. And he said some things after this game, like, you know, like I want to be in the hall of fame. I want to, you know, add, add to my numbers and add to my resume. We haven't really heard that very much. And I think that just tells you where his mind is about where his future is. And it's not in Cincinnati. And in order to bolster that Hall of Fame resume, he's got to get out of Cincinnati because there's no way he can stay here and be just a guy when he was the guy for a decade. That 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 dynamic just doesn't transition well. And T. Higgins and Tyler Boyd, like those are the two leaders of that group. And AJ Green's not going to be you know, just, it's just third wheeling in this offense. He's going to go to a place that's going to feature him more and just give him a fresh start. And he needs that in order to get that Hall of Fame boost. For Gino, I mean, you make an all-decade team, you have a pretty good boost on your resume already. A Pro Bowls, two All-Pros stay enough. This this season definitely hurts, though. And, like, it, it would be nice if the, the voting system doesn't, you know, weigh team success so much into these players. But, you know, a lack of playoff success is going to hurt Gino, too. You know, I think because the production and the accolades speak for themselves, but it just it just seems like Gino's going to be one of those guys that just ends up. I mean, some of these some of these guys they don't get inducted until they're seventy or eighty years old, and hopefully Gino lives out long because he's a great dude. But it wouldn't surprise me if that's the if that's the case for him. Gino Atkins kind of revamped or or started a little bit of a revolution of the interior defensive linemen. Um, and, and what they what what they're doing in the modern era of football. I mean, before him, a guy like John Randall, he he kind of was a Geno Atkins mold type of guy, smaller and a guy that just got after the quarterback nonstop and was just an animal. But you know, when you look in this in this day and age, you've got Aaron Donald, Fletcher Cox is a very effective interior defensive lineman, and you know you've got Sue and McCoy and all of that. But really, uh, Atkins was the guy that kind of started that that run and and. He he got he doesn't have the same kind of notoriety as those guys, but I think I think Atkins, based on his resume, has a little bit more of a a stronger resume to stand on for the Hall of Fame than than AJ Green. I think AJ Green, if he gets the franchise marks in major categories, um, I think he's he's one away from tying Chad Johnson's uh, mark for touchdown receptions as a Cincinnati Bengal. I think if he starts to get some of those. Um, I think you're going to start looking at it. Wide receiver is always difficult, though, John, because there's always so many guys that, you know, it's just such a flashy position. And these guys put up a lot of numbers, especially now in today's NFL. Um, it's it's just hard. It's hard to not get lost in the shuffle. I hope he does not. That's why I would like to see if it's with the Bengals. Great. But if it's somewhere else, I would like to see him go somewhere where he puts up, you know, two, three seasons of of really high quality play where you go okay yeah this is he's most definitely a hall of famer no no doubt you, you bring up a great point not just because before aaron donald there was geno atkins and from 2011 to midway through 2013 which is when geno tore his acl on, on halloween against the dolphins he was the, he was clearly the best three technique defensive tackle in the game and he kind of pioneered that position to how it revolutionized today. Like you mentioned, you know, he came back and all of a sudden Aaron Donald comes onto the field and he's been the king for several years. And that's why he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. That transition happened right before our eyes. And we all knew that Donald was had to send a Geno to that point. But even still, you know, from 2015 to 2018, 2019, he was at, at worst above average. And 2015 was still kind of the old Geno from 2012 and, tw and 2011 that we saw. So it was sustained success. And was also being at the top of your position for at least two years, which will definitely help him, or it should help him. Uh, 
longtime listener of the show, Michael Flukas, says AJ will get in, but with the logjam of receivers and the new number, he'll be waiting a while. Gino is more likely to be in the Hall of Fame before AJ. It's pretty much my sentiments. I think both are worthy. I really do. I just think AJ's AJ's probably going to have, if he does, especially if he does not come up with a couple of seasons here at the end of his career, if he does not come up with some productive seasons here or gets on a team that wins and he is a contributor to that. Uh, I think he's going to be waiting a while, but I, I think, you know, talent wise and, you know, even though he played for the Bengals, they don't get a lot of the, the notoriety for hall of fame votes. He was a top five pick and a guy who just, str- you know, strung together a number of awesome seasons. So I agree with, with um, Michael there, Larry Wilson says, you know, Ken Anderson not being the hall of fame is a travesty. We, yes, we, we totally agree. We had Ken on a few months ago. We asked him about that and classy Ken, he just kind of, diverted it and talked about his other teammates who should be in. And uh, one of which was one that Mike Holbrook says here, Lamar Parrish should be in the hall of fame as well. And then of course, Ken Riley, another one. So um, a lot of guys are deserving in terms of Cincinnati Bengals players. I mean, you can even make arguments for Willie Anderson, for sure. Corey Dillon, um, you can make an argument for Chad Johnson. Um, You know, he may get in later down the road, but uh, you know, they're going to get, these guys are get kind of getting slighted and I hope it's not the same for these two, but with the injuries, I'm a little worried about it. I just want to ask like, like one very general question, like just, just to anybody, like, do you think that Devonte Adams thinks that he's going to be a hall of famer one day? Cause I mean, last five years he's had 1200 yards. Yeah. It was injured one year, but then 1300 yards, 1300 yards on pace for like 1500 yards. Like the Adams is just one example but that's just what what is happening in the NFL. There's so many good receivers, and so many of them will have better numbers at the end of their career than AJ Green. So as good as AJ Green was, like it was hard enough to get in as wide receiver like 10, 5 years ago. It's going to be even harder in 15 years from now when uh, uh, you know all these guys retire at the peak of passing efficiency in the NFL. It, it's going to be tough, and I just hope that Green ends up in a place where he can tack on some playoff success to that production. Agreed. Agreed. And those guys are deserving. I think it's just a matter of when they get in there. Let's move on. Speaking of playoffs and success and all of that, let's move on to the Bengals game against the Steelers. John, they play on Monday Night Football. The beginning of the season, I was pretty excited about this one. I, I kind of felt like this is may, this may have been a, a time where Joe Burrow and the rest of the team could have sh- been showing a lot of growth and maybe sneak a win out of this here. But uh, – so I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's kind of a, a difficult difficult game to believe that the Bengals will. I don't know. Get be competitive. I, I I don't know. I mean, this is just a difficult game, and I I, I worry about the primetime stuff again, even with a different head coach, different quarterback, and all of that. I don't I don't know, man. I, I just how do you how do you how do you spin this one? I guess is well, what I'm asking. Well, with the Burrow angle, it's like, I mean, they got beat pretty handily with him out there, and he got you know, decimated behind the offensive line in that vaunted pass rush, which we all kind of expected would happen. But there was also, like, if they lost that game, which they did, you know, the thinking was, you know, you know, Burrow's going to learn from those mistakes, and he's going to be motivated, and he's got, got that competitive spirit and all that, all that jargon, and he, they're going to be better in this game. You know, they're going to have some, some form of, of improvements because Burrow's going to learn from his mistakes, and he's going to lead the team to a, at least a more promising performance. Now he's not out there. Now we don't even know who's a, in that quarterback. Like, this is they're, – they're 12 and a half point underdogs at home in December, which is it's, – it's nearly unheard of. I think Paul Daniel – I'm pulling it up right now. Paul Daniel Jr. looked it up. Like, the last 20 years – for a Monday night or a Sunday night game in November and December with a double-digit homeowner underdog. It's only happened like seven times. and A lot of it involved Tom Brady, and a lot of it involved Tom Brady covering that spread, um, or just a game that involved Tom Brady with the Patriots. So it doesn't happen a lot, and it it just, yeah, it, I don't know. I, I don't know how they stay close in this game because on, to- on top of everything else, Steelers have lost two in a row. They're fighting for, you know, playoff seeding right now in the AFC because they've already almost lost the number one seed to the Chiefs. So they're already mad enough. That doesn't mean anything that they've beaten the Bengals the past five years in a row now. So you have that you know aspect to it. It's just it's hard to see this game being close, man. It really is. Yeah, so it, you know, the Bengals take on the Steelers, John. This is this could be a situation where 
the where Zach Taylor is looking at a you know one win in two years within the division, and I, I, I guess the question needs to be asked. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to pull up a a tweet by Richard Skinner. Uh, he kind of made note. Um, I'm trying to find where that is. If I if I can get it, I can I'll pull that up for you. But basically, he said something uh, to the uh, to the effect of you know Mike Brown was kind of taking a slow pensive lap around Paul Brown Stadium after the loss against Dallas, and what does that mean? And is that any kind of indication against uh, uh, you know about Zach Taylor, et cetera? So I guess the question has to be asked, John, is if the Bengals put up an embarrassing performance against the Steelers on primetime television, if they don't really put up a fight, if there's some sort of hint that they aren't trying or backing their head coach, if the effort doesn't seem to be there, the mistakes are a plenty and it's an embarrassment much like other primetime recent primetime games are. Is this, is that the thing that costs Zach Taylor his job with that division record? Well, it should like his job security should absolutely be in question right now. And we all think that, you know, Mike Brown is patient. He wants to build something. He values continuity over everything. He wants to see the foundation of something being built great. But when he sees the foundation is built on mud and cotton candy, he can't ignore that. Right. It doesn't matter how much he's still paying Zach for the next year or two or however long that contract is. He is undoubtedly thinking to himself. I, I pro- we probably made a mistake. My, my daughter probably made a mistake in, in trusting this guy to turn around this franchise. And that's definitely something he's thinking about. And I know that reports from Albert Breer and Ian Rappaport are saying that his job is more than likely safe no matter how the season turns out. But that's based off what has happened and not will happen because we can all pretty much assume this is going to be another ugly loss. It's going to be the third ugly loss in a row. They're probably going to lose to Houston against a good quarterback and Deshaun Watson. And then they then they very well could get embarrassed again against the Ravens team that is surging at the right time. So that's going to be like six or however many consecutive losses, most of them being bad, ugly, terrible performances featuring ejections, featuring players, lack of talent lack of coaching everything just looks abysmal they're one of the worst teams in NFL right now so yeah like right now I can understand why Zach Taylor is probably safe according to reports but based off of what is probably going to happen there's no doubt that it's going to be some some type of a 50-50 decision with Mike because he wants to keep him I'm assuming he likes the fact that he and Burrow are on the same page but he can't ignore everything that's happening and just brush it to the side for the sake of continuity yeah so I found the tweet from Richard Richard Skinner there talking about uh, Bengals president Mike Brown walking post-game laps around Paul Brown Stadium after a loss like this makes me honestly wonder what goes through his mind as he does. And our good buddy, Ben Baby of ESPN, says, <laughs> replied to it, I think that would require him speaking to the media. Um, that's pretty, pretty awesome. But, you know, I, I just – that was the thought I had going into this week, and I hate to, I hate to automatically dive into, oh, boy, we're going to get crushed here, but – it's just, I mean, I, I just wonder if, again, a bad loss on national TV to a division rival, you don't have many, you've got one division win. And I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's the one that makes you say, you know what, maybe we give Darren Simmons an audition for the next couple of games. And that's, and that's that, that would be the only other thing I can think of that would be in, in Mike Brown's mind in the back of his mind in terms of making a potential move there is Darren Simmons getting a shot because they did interview him when they interviewed Zach Taylor. I, I want to ask you this, and I guess a, a decent number of fans this, because there has been a, a topic that has come up, like, you know, a path is Zach getting fired, seeing what Darren Simmons can do for the final couple of games. Uh, along with Zach Taylor not being obviously qualified or prepared to be a head coach, something we've talked about is the fact that his assistants have not given him any help and that he's not had an experienced and qualified assistant coaching staff to help him out. Darren Simmons is the assistant head coach. He got promoted this past offseason. If there's anybody on the staff that should have been looked at for guidance on how to handle some of this stuff, you would think it would be Darren Simmons. So I'm just I'm curious as to why Simmons seems to be the one avoiding some of that criticism that obviously Jim Turner and Louie Narumo are warranted at in terms of that being thrown in their direction. But is it just because like special teams is consistently good? Like it, it seems as if Simmons would be the guy that Taylor would look to in terms of guidance in these in, in-game management situations. And he clearly isn't giving him any good advice. It's a really good question. And I almost wonder if he actually uses Darren Simmons as a soundboard because Darren Simmons is a Marvin Lewis guy. 
Darren Simmons came on board with Marvin Lewis in 03. And obviously the organization still values what Simmons brings to the table. And Zach Taylor brought in, that was probably a guy that ownership's like, you're going to keep Darren Simmons. You can can keep all, you can bring in all these other guys, but you're going to keep Darren Simmons. And so, you know, maybe, maybe that, because it may not have been Zach's choice, maybe that's, he's not in that little inner circle of the Jim Turner, Lou Anarumo guys that have worked together with Zach. Total conjecture on my part, but maybe that has something to do with it. I don't know. Maybe they have a great working relationship and maybe Darren Simmons is not qualified to be a head coach, but I guess, I guess where you kind of follow that breadcrumb trail is in the fact that he was interviewed for the head coaching job after Marvin Lewis left. So, um, you know, and I, I think they also look across the division and see what, what John Harbaugh has done with the Ravens over a, a long period of time. And he got, he cut his teeth as a special teams coach. So, Maybe that's all part of it. Maybe we're just way off base or I'm way off base in suggesting this, but um, you know, that's really kind of the, the only two things I can see really that would prompt the the Browns, Blackburns, Duke Tobin to make a coaching change before 2020 ends would be that they want to give Darren Simmons a shot to see how this team responds under his leadership and or they get embarrassed this Monday night. And it's also just something to be said. Very rarely does hiring the interim head coach work out. Look right. at me, look at the Browns, you know. Right. And I think we can all agree that Darren Simmons is probably more qualified than Freddie Kitchens, but still, if if they happen to fire Zach, it has to be somebody that isn't on the staff right now. I wholeheartedly agree. And that's that's not saying I don't like Darren Simmons. I respect what he's done with the special teams crew. If you remember pre-Darren Simmons, if you remember the Al Roberts era, there are guys, oh my God, there are guys in there like, Travis Dorsch and Neil Rackers, that was a, a carousel of whatever. Uh, you know, um, Darren Simmons really steadied this this group that was a mess really prior to him getting there. So I respect him, but I agree with you, John. I think, I think it has to be another outside voice that comes in here. And um, even if it's one that has past ties to the Bengals, I could be enemy. I don't know. But even so, even so, I still expect Zach to be here for 21 unless these last – three games here just completely unravel in our total embarrassments and the, the scores are continue to be totally lopsided, but let's kind of focus in on this one here. What, what, I mean, can the Bengals ride the negative momentum that the Steelers seem to be on in a two game losing streak? They're getting their names dragged through the mud. This seems to be setting up for just the total <laughs> uh, rebound game for Pittsburgh after being kind of dragged through the mud here. But uh, I mean, do you, do you think the Bengals can take advantage of them in any way here to sneak out a win or make this at least a very entertaining and competitive game? It's like that, like their, their weaknesses on offense, you know, if, if they don't have like a dominant defensive performance then they can get into trouble. I think Mina Kimes put it best. Like Ben Roethlisberger is essentially Ben Simmons. He's just a tall point guard that doesn't really take a lot of deep shots at this point. Like that offense has evolved to the point where it's still just getting the ball really quickly and, and just keeping everything you know close to the chest. And they don't really have that much of a dominant running game r- right now. And it, it's like, it it's why they're, I guess a, a week 11 and two team, which is, I think we all kind of saw this about a month ago. Now it's starting to come through fruition after losing to Buffalo and Washington but even when the Steelers are bad, like they're still they're still not only better than the Bengals, but they're just always more prepared to face the Bengals than the Bengals are prepared to face the Steelers. It's just it's like no matter how bad Pittsburgh is, there is always just just minimal amount of confidence in the Bengals taking advantage of their weaknesses and taking advantage of their of their misfortunes. And you know that Pittsburgh is ultra motivated to make sure that they put together a win to keep themselves in that number one seed race. That's so important because there's only one. Um, team with a buy in, in each conference and right now it's the Chiefs who are looking locked in for that spot but the Steelers aren't going to give up and they're certainly not going to roll over to a team that they've beaten for the past 12 or 11 times so it, like there are weaknesses that they can exploit but it comes down to preparation and the Bengals are probably not going to be prepared going back to your last question here Al Mack too says Taylor may well view Simmons as the Brown family's or else option so maybe there's maybe a little bit of a I don't know looking over your shoulder um I don't know. Didn't mean to go backwards there and what we were just talking about, but there was a, an interesting response there. Look, man, I, I, quite honestly, I mean, I don't expect the Bengals to win. I, I, I don't expect this game to be close, but I hope it is. I just, I, for the sake of building momentum into next year, especially if you're going to keep Zach Taylor for the sake of 
all of that stuff. You got it. You got to make this competitive, and you can't make it an absolute embarrassment with a with a carnival of errors. You know, I mean, it's just like if they do a deal where that where they fumble three straight times again, or you know, there's interception after interception, or you know, they're just not able to move the ball at all. It's just going to be an embarrassment, and I just. I hope they avoid that. And I don't mean to sound overly negative, but there's just not when you lose to a Dallas team at home 30 to seven with a backup quarterback and a lot of backups on the Dallas roster. I know you're sporting a lot as the Cincinnati Bengals, but I I just, I'm trying to, I'm trying to find ways that there are ways to be hopeful. And I'm, I'm struggling quite honestly. It's just sucks, man. You know, like for multiple years, you had, the end of 2016, 2017, 2018, in the back of your mind, like, okay, how can the Bengals look so bad that they have to get rid of Marvin Lewis? Because at that point, everybody was just over that marriage. And 2018 was just was the other shoe that finally dropped and that and that happened. Two years later, I think a lot of a lot of people were at the same point. Like, how bad did the Bengals need to lose in order for this for another changeup to happen? But also, like going back to you know Matt's point, like eventually, if the Bengals want to get to a place that they aspire to be, they have to put together some quality wins. You know, one win against a Tennessee team in two years is just not going to cut it. So yeah, they're probably going to get, they're probably going to lose, they're probably going to lose bad. But like, like how many, how many more embarrassing losses can a lot of these guys take against the same team, especially in their own place? You know, it just seems like, it seems like a breaking point has to happen at some point. Yeah, if you actually go back to our interview with Tim McGee last week. Um, I mean, many, many interesting facets to, to that interview, but uh, you know, he talked about running the ball and he talked about building the team, building a team to get through the division. And that's kind of what Marvin preached when he was here. And I think, you know, I mean, you can, you can get your quarterback and you can do all of these things, but if you don't have a plan or an identity as to how to get, you know, a vision as to how to get through these teams, you have to beat Pittsburgh. You have to every year, you have to beat this team and you have to at least split with them. Same with Baltimore. I mean, Cleveland, the Bengals owned Cleveland for a while and now it's kind of going back the other way. I mean, but for the most part, you cannot get into the playoffs without beating Baltimore and Pittsburgh at least once a piece. If you're the Cincinnati Bengals, you just can't. And so you need to start building your team and your team identity in a way that you feel can beat these teams consistently and at least splitting with them on an annual basis. And the Bengals, they've had, they had some success against Baltimore in the, you know, prime days of Andy and AJ and, and some in cart in the Carson and Chad era, but Pittsburgh has always been a thorn in their side for sure. I I mean, I, I can't even remember it's, that's why it's like when the Bengals win, it's this big, Super Bowl type win for the Bengals when they beat him in the regular season. So I, I thought, I don't know if you, you caught that with him about, you know, an emphasis on running the ball. I know a lot of people don't like to hear that, but I mean, I think, I think the point is you got to build your team to be able to get through this division. And um, one of the facets is at least finding a semblance of balance, I think on offense. Yeah. And I guess to kind of close this out, like, um, Charles McDonald, who's a writer that I very much enjoy for the NFL. He's just started working for um, writing for For the Win, which is USA Today's uh, NFL um, outlet. And he wrote about, you know, Zach Taylor. Like, this isn't gaining a lot of, like, national attention like Adam Gase or maybe Anthony Lynn is because, fortunately, the Bengals just aren't as relevant as uh, as other teams are. And that's it's essentially what he said, you know, like. Of course, no one would blame them. This is this is what he wrote. Of course, no one would blame them if, if they kept Taylor either, because at the end of the day, nobody outside of Cincinnati really cares or pays attention to the Bengals. It's like it's like Taylor almost has like a comfort in being in a, a, a on a team that doesn't really get a lot of national attention because he's four twenty one and one, and not a lot of people are talking about how bad that is. Like he's on the verge of, of getting really close to Hugh Jackson's winning percentage as a head coach. And people are going to watch this game on Monday night because it's the only game on. And and I think the, the dialogue might, might start to kick up with two weeks left in the season. Yep. Well, let's call our shot, drop the mic, and get out of here. John, do you have a prediction for this game or a key to the game or something wacky you think is going to happen this week for either team when the Bengals host the Pittsburgh Steelers on Monday Night Football? Uh, key to the game, drink lots of Gansett. <laughs> But I, I want I wanted to say this um, last week. I wrote about 
and did a video on Michael Jordan and against the Miami Dolphins. Jordan got benched in that game um, for Xavier Suofilo and ended up not being active against the Dallas Cowboys a week later. I wrote about that performance and um, in my analysis, I was pretty animated. And honestly, looking back, I was really harsh at Mike. I saw my dad a, a day or two after the article published and he, he reads and a lot of my content he listens to the show you might be listening to it right now uh, hi dad if you're listening um and and he just put it blatantly like i, I you know i was really harsh on mike you know I, I said that he probably should never step on an nfl field again and i, I do that stuff kind of in like alive off the top there's not a lot of preparation for it and that was just kind of what came to my mind and at the time it, it seemed warranted because it was just that bad but you know i've been doing this since you know cedric away and russell Bowden. I'm like, I'm, like we've seen some bad stuff in the Bengals offense line but this was the first time I realized that like Michael Jordan is 18 months younger than me. He's 22 years old. He's still developing not only as a football player, but as a person. Like at the end of the day, he might be a professional, but he's still just a kid. And it never really occurred to me that like, you know, now I'm in a position where I'm like I'm talking down on people that are younger than me, even though they're like seven inches and hundred pounds bigger than me. So, you know, like I, I want, I want to like kind of apologize for that. You know, it got a lot, that article and video got a lot of traction but I think I could have handled it a little bit better. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's just like these guys are humans and they deserve to be fairly assessed and critiqued, but not in ways that kind of demean like that. So just want, just wanted to apologize for that. That's classy, man. That's classy. And, you know, I, I did, I kind of felt the same way a few weeks back. I, I don't know if you remember, we talked about uh, Alex Redman because his father-in-law kind of goes, comes to his defense quite often and actually has come on to some of our live broadcasts. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, these these guys are human and they're young and, you know, sometimes we, you know, you just throw stuff out there and you're trying to be professional in your analysis on things and call it, you know, not uh, objectively. And, uh, you know, I mean, our, our stuff, I, I don't mean to say this egotistically, but so it, it surprises us sometimes as to who, you know, sees stuff and our, and our platform on Cincy Jungle is pretty pretty powerful, pretty loud. So, um, you know, I, I think that's classy of you. And, and you are right. He is a young player. He's still one of the youngest players on the roster. He was the youngest player on the roster last year, I think. So, um, you know, it could be still a work in progress. And it's, you know, maybe another offensive line coach can mine something out of this kid and maybe they find a spot for him. Maybe he will never be a starting offensive lineman. But uh, classy, classy to bring that up, John. Um Kudos to you, and that was good work too. By the way, the the weekly lineman—that's always a good a good thing. I don't really have much um, for my mic drop, unfortunately, or my call my shot. I guess for this week, I w- I'll say this: um, Austin Siebert will not inspire the Bengals fan base to replace Randy Bullock. I think <laughs> I don't think I don't think that either of those guys are really long-term answers beyond this year. Randy Bullock kind of had a nice statistical year this year, but you know, I mean, there's just too many long misses, too many clutch time misses. So, um, and I don't see Austin cyber, you know, really providing much more that Randy Bullock cannot. Um, and when you sit here, I didn't watch much of, I watched some of the Browns Ravens game, but as usual, Justin Tucker is just a generational guy. And if it just, you know, you tend to overlook kickers until you got a guy like that. And that guy just is for, for a kicker. He's incredible. He really is, John. I mean, I, I've never seen the guy make so many clutch and like deep kicks. I I just, I don't think I've ever seen a guy do that in all the years I've watched football. He's pretty incredible. So the Bengals are fortunate enough to find a guy like that, man, you hang on to him for dear life. (laughs) Because I think the Ravens are very grateful to have Justin Tucker. Like that, that came up in the conversation like a year or two ago. Like, how what what draft pick would you trade for Justin Tucker? Honestly, uh, man, I mean, if if you knew what you had, I mean, there are teams. Who was the guy? God, that Tampa picked was in the second round or third round. Uh, oh yeah, Roberto Aguayo or yeah. whatever. Everybody thought he was going to be this transcendent guy, and he just was a mess. Um, and so, I mean, but if you knew you had a guy in there like Justin Tucker and you, you, you know, if you had your magic eight ball and you could see into the future as to who that guy was going to be for your football team. I mean, I think, I think you got to go day two on, on that, on a pick like that for a kicker. If you know what he can give you, right. I would trade a third easily. Yeah. 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 
I mean, he's just incredible. He really is. And even when that offense was not moving the ball great uh, in previous years, he was he was still their their biggest weapon. So um, I, I hope the Bengals can maybe among many other positions that they fill next year. I hope that's one that they can find with a trans transcendent talent kicker. Believe it or not, um, and I think we reminded of that this week. This has been the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. Thanks for joining us live, or if you're downloading after the fact, we appreciate that. Get this show on YouTube, as well as Matt Minnick's Chalk Talk. You can also get the audio versions of this show, Matt Minnick's Chalk Talk, and Orange is the New Black from New Stripe City. You can go get all of those on the Cincy Jungle Podcast channel. Go give New Stripe City a subscribe on YouTube as well. They do a lot of different things and a lot of cool things. Great guys, Ace and Zim, and they bring a lot to the table with us at Cincy Jungle. So we appreciate all the support. We'll see you next time, John. Uh, have a good have a good week, my friend. I hope I hope everything's going well. We're gearing up for the holiday here, so hope you're doing well. Have a good, have a good week too. Um, happy early birthday to my sister, though she turns 26 on the 19th. Happy birthday! Oh, nice. Happy birthday, happy birthday, John's sister, and thank you, Mister Sheeran, for, for for listening. I know uh, I know he likes some of the tweets and stuff. He's a good guy. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time. Have a good week. <laughs>